0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Our music's still a little bit loud because we got new software, but anyhow, we're back from vacation, I think, yes, yeah, it's vacation, it's l- <laughs> I think so, no, maybe, possibly, I don't know, I've had a super crazy week, and anyhow... It's uh, Monday, I guess, and joining us for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is our friend, as always, Mr. Jeff Copsetta, Henry Sledge, and our guest of the day. I'm actually going to give Jeff, Jeff or Henry, who uh, we're going to go with Jeff. I'll give Jeff the honors. Jeff, you want to go ahead and introduce our nice guest today?
2: Yeah, appreciate it, Don. So um, our guest tonight is uh, somebody that we're really excited to have on. Absolutely. Wealth of Knowledge. Absolutely researcher um and it was a kind of a by chance uh invitation got an email from i wanted to give a shout out to uh fineartofdecals.com mr david klaus over there at fineartofdecals.com decals being the waterslide um insignias that we use for scale models for those of you who don't build model airplanes or don't build uh, models at all
1: is that the technical uh, phrase waterslide Oh, that's probably the least
2: technical uh, phrase. See, I'm, I not, think I'm not in the is...
1: model decal. So, that yeah, that's cool. I yeah. never knew it actually had a, fr- I just called them stickers. But, yeah. So, water slide. That's oh, yeah, actually, perfect would sense. would probably
2: be even less of a technical term. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, the last but, you know, time I built a the...
1: model was probably 1983. So, what it makes okay. perfect sense, though? Water slide. That's right, cool. right. Go ahead. So,
2: yeah, you know, I, I've mentioned on the show before that I'm a big scale model uh, hobbyist and uh, just happened to be on an email list from from this great company who has a good friend that we're going to have on tonight, Mr. Dana Bell. And when I first heard about him and his new trilogy of books, uh, I, I knew I had one of his publications on this bookshelf somewhere. And uh, this is just one of the many that that you see behind me. And um, we're just going to let uh, we're going to let Mr. Bell tell us all about it. So without further ado, uh, Dana, thanks for uh, coming on. What's the scuttlebutt tonight? and uh love having you on
3: pleasure jeff pleasure glad to be here appreciate uh joining in with you as as i mentioned when i was corresponding with jeff uh, i saw one of your one of your podcasts and realized it was a bunch of enthusiasts talking enthusiastically <laughs> and it just seemed uh seemed like too much fun not to join in
1: Well, I'm Um, excited that you emailed Jeff because that is an indicator that our little show is getting out there
3: (laughs) when, when, you
1: know, when gentlemen like yourself with such a catalog, as I was looking at the, the, the catalog you have behind you. So the fact that our little podcast somehow made it (laughs) your way, that is a huge, uh, puts a smile on my face. So welcome to the show. Pleasure to be
3: here. Pleasure.
1: So give us a little background. Um, how did you get into the line of work that you got into and coming up with books and in particular, the subject matter of your books?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I started out, I wanted to be an engineer and, uh, there's a really filthy word. I don't know if you can say this word on the air, but it's called calculus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. But, Calculus for me, a new one. And, uh, I learned very quickly. I was probably not going to be much of an engineer. Uh, but some of my, I was big plastic modeler, loved the stuff. And one of my uh, roommates was at the student union and saw a guy reading a model airplane magazine and put the two of us in touch. And this was up in upstate New York. And they had a modeling group up there that actually produced a, uh, modeling magazine called Flight Plan. And uh, one day they said, geez, you ought to to write an article, uh, write something about the American mosquito. And uh, we're all going down to the National Archives. Why don't you come along? And I thought it sounded pretty good. And eventually I figured out I was the only one with a car. So we're all (laughs) going down to the National Archives, meant we might be going down to the National Archives. And this was 1972. I had my first time in the archives, and within a few hours, I was madly in love with with primary research. It was just too much fun. I've been writing ever since, Um, just keeps things going. I ended up working for the Air Force at their historical still photo depository in uh, early 76, and then uh, at the very end of 81, moved over to the National Air and Space Museum. And I retired about 16 years ago, just so I could write full time, and it's been a blast.
1: I can imagine. I know that's one of the um, the newly developed loves that Henry has. Is he's uh, been spending a lot of time on the behind the keyboards, and you know he's also one of those who would love to just be able to write full time and do podcasts on the side, and and just go, get all his interest out there.
3: Well, Henry, you you came by it naturally. It's in your veins.
0: Uh, yeah but hey man i mean i'll echo what jeff said i love the scale modeling stuff yeah so you know i mean the corsair cockpit in and of itself is a subject of, of <laughs> great passion of mine i love corsairs yeah it's it well that that's the
3: latest book obviously but um that one came about almost as a response to covid mm-hmm. uh, my first two corsair books were for steve wiper out at uh, uh classic Aircraft and um, aircraft pictorial series. Um, we wanted to cover. We were initially going to cover the the uh, Hellcat. And then we yeah. found, then we found out that Tamiya was releasing the series of models in one thirty second scale for the Corsair. So we rapidly switched over and began working on the Corsair. Researched for two years at the National Archives, the Air and Space Museum, uh, bought records. Wow. Yeah. M- my own rule. I- I've only got so many books in me. And yeah, you know, the rule for me is I'm not going to write a book that doesn't tell you something you don't know because I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste your money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you find but, it's, it's harder to maintain that goal as, as time goes by? Because obviously there's... There's so much interest in the subject matter hand, World War II, aviation. Yeah. And as time goes by, more and more content's been, being written by the information that's available at the National Archives through word of mouth, mm-hmm. photos, et cetera. So, ha- have you gotten to the point where you had an idea for a book, but following your, your guidelines that you made for yourself, you're like, well, can't do that one. That one just came out. You know, something similar came out. That subject matter's out there. So, let me yeah. redirect and head a different way
3: absolutely I'd, I'd much rather buy somebody else's near perfect book than fail in my own attempts to write that near perfect book um i'd love to write about the mustang uh i found a number of things that are different that have never been published but i've never found enough to justify a book that i write there are so many people that are so close to the p51 and have done so much um i'm going to wait for somebody else to write that book Uh, It's, you see an awful lot of people doing research at the archives every day. I was there today and, you know, it was nearly full on the second floor. Um, And you see an awful lot of people writing books on these different subjects. But unfortunately, we don't get to see enough people that are actually at the archives doing the research, then come back and writing the book to go with it. And there's just, all right, my two. Corsair books. My, now my three Corsair books are different. They they change a lot of what we believed the history of the Corsair was. Um, it's not because I'm a better re- researcher or anything like that, but the archives has done a magnificent job of processing new materials, things that had been in federal record center or centers, things that had been in the archives but needed a better finding aid to sure. uh, to negotiate your way around it.
1: I'm sure when they start digitizing stuff that that made it a lot easier. And I just had a thought, you know, we're, I just mentioned a few minutes ago as time yeah. goes by more and more contents getting covered, but as time goes by more and more stuff being declassified, so there's new, new, new stuff coming out all the time.
3: Absolutely.
1: Real quick Absolutely. question. You said you were recently at the archives and the place was full. Are you noticing a younger group of cats in there or is it, you know, basically the older crew like us? Um, well, I'm the older crew.
3: You guys are a lot younger, but there are a lot of youngsters there. Um, We had a a crew in this week and last from uh, Brown University. Uh, My youngest son is just about 20 years old. He's there working with me right now. Um, That's good to hear. It is. It is. It's wonderful. He's he's impressed the living daylights out of me. um, if we're just chatting, I'll, I'll give you the background story on why my youngest is at the archive. Sure. But, um, when he was in grade school, we were one-car family, so I had to drive and pick him up every day. It meant I left the archives like one, one fifteen, one thirty at the latest. Um, but they used to have bags of three little chocolate chip cookies that uh, you could buy with the lunchroom, and and I'd buy the bag of cookies. And I'd eat one with my lunch. And when he got into the car after school, that bag was there with two cookies in it every day. And pretty soon he got the idea, hey, you know, this National Archives must be really (laughs) special. They've got cookies. And uh, it worked out pretty well. We eventually got him there when he turned 16. and, And he's been working with me a lot lately and doing some pretty fine work.
1: See, that's the two things that fathers and sons have in common. They say the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, same thing for young boys. <laughs> straight through the stomach. Indeed, indeed.
2: So, uh, Dana, I was just uh, – so I'm down in Texas now. I've, I've been here for over 20 years, and I live about an hour uh, north of Austin. So that's the closest opportunity that I have uh, to go to a hobby shop because that's just something that's near and dear. My, my grandfather – used to build, you know, balsa and linen uh, yeah. biplanes that he would use, you know, make his own blueprints out of. And then, of course, that passed down to my dad, who's uh, more of a model railroader now than, than a, a model, uh, you know, airplanes or ships. Uh-huh. Uh, then, of course, my whole childhood. I mean, anytime I spell model glue, it <laughs> takes me back to my childhood, you know, and I, and I never grew out of it. It's still what I do. Um, and then my oldest son, he's 16 now. Mm-hmm. He's a fabulous modeler. Oh my goodness! But of course, you know the models they have now—it's just no fair. You know, he's got oh, a Dauntless in one forty-eighth with you know photo express brass dive brakes. Like, man, I didn't have that on the Ravel kit as a kid. Is
0: you know? <laughs> it Ravel kit, Jeff?
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, no. This is—I don't even know. This may be an accurate miniatures or something. Okay. I can't remember. I—it I, I, took me a while to find them. That particular one for for Christmas a year or so ago, but. So the other day I was at the hobby shop in Austin, the last one left, you know, they moved to all these different business strip malls they you know, they're, they're constantly having to downsize and it just, it's depressing to see these hobby shops, you know, I hate to say it, but eBay and Amazon, they're, they're putting lobby, out of business.
1: Walmart.
2: Yeah. yeah. And so I bought a few things there and I bought a few things and I, and I don't think my wife will listen to this episode. I spent like $400 there. And, you know, it's just, and and, I, and I've mentioned this, I think, before on the show with the hobby. You know, you used to be able to spend 10 bucks and go home with a model airplane. You just can't do it. I understand quality and all this stuff. That's great. But what are your thoughts on, the cost of this hobby for young kids to get into it. I just think it's outrageous, number one. And number two, does that affect you in any way? Do you depend on the adult modelers or do you see, you know, kind of like going back to Don's question, do we, is the torch being passed to keep this history alive in the scale model world enough to justify the, I can't imagine the time and the eye bleeding research that it takes for you to do a publication like that. How, what, are, what are your thoughts going forward?
3: Um, I think the hobby will continue to survive. It will be reduced. Things will get more expensive. There aren't as many youngsters that are interested in it, but there are still youngsters that are interested in it. And um, I think the the thing I've seen is the dads who sit down building their own models usually have the kids get interested and they want to join whatever dad is up to, sons and daughters. And every convention I attend, there's a a cadre of smaller uh, kids out there building models and some of them, geez, I never had that kind of quality when I was a modeler. I still, (laughs) by the way, I think of myself as a modeler, but it's been a good 20 years since I've glued anything together. you know, as I've often said, if you're sitting in front of the TV watching Project Runway with your wife and uh, you got an open aircraft in profile on one knee and an open box of plastic on the other, and you enjoyed yourself with your wife, with the TV and, and part of the hobby in your lap, that's good enough. You didn't you do anything. You didn't pay <laughs> me anything, but I had a good time. Um, by the way, I've watched a number of project runway shows and I haven't seen an airplane land on that damn thing yet. It's just, uh, something not right there.
1: That's what I refer to as by proxy watching. It (laughs) kind of, it kind of relieves you a little bit of the guilt. You're watching it by proxy. Ah, yes. Now, as I stated before, it's been years since I've picked up that white tube with the orange label at the top and cracked open a few models. I can only imagine that the quality and detail on the parts before they're assembled has gone through the roof with the advent and availability of just computers and the technology that they're able to scale these things with and in detail versus how they're doing them back in the 70s and 80s i'm sure that you could see a tremendous difference in just the quality of the model itself before you even assemble it oh
3: lord yes yeah. what see, what well, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, you were lucky to get a model that actually had landing gear or or had a, a plastic canopy. And a lot of the models I had in the 50s just had the frame, and then they had a little strip of plastic across the top to represent where the canopy would have ended. Um, all solid, one color, you didn't have to paint them. Um, but uh, the hobby has, has just been insane. It's been wonderful. Um, I keep hearing the hobby is dead. And I think this is the real golden age for, for building models of anything. Photo etched brass, you mentioned, uh, resin cockpits. Um, Oh Lord, uh, all this, uh, computer, uh, generated, uh, 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 resin pieces that they're creating now. It's, it's amazing.
1: Here's a question over time. Um, Different outlets, magazines, manufacturers, groups, what have you—they have to find a way to evolve with the times to stay relevant to continue making money. Has mm-hmm. any of the major modeling companies put out downloadables so that people with um, 3D printers can make their own pieces to assemble models, make, basically make them at home using you know paid service? here you can download you know for two dollars whatever download the chart and print one up yourself and then assemble it has that become a thing yet
3: I, I won't be surprised when it happens but yeah. I've not seen it happen yet I think the 3d printing that's that's going on now is uh, it's taking off it's just amazing but you you buy the 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 um, the final product you don't yeah. buy the tools to make the final product and I guess that's the problem with anything computerized. Um, you buy one and then you copy it and use it and give it to your best buddy. And he uses it and his six kids use it and they do the same thing. It's it's hard. It's like uh, uh, electronic downloadable books, you know, Oh, excuse me. The, the devil's own way to get ripped off. Uh, it saves the Russians and the Chinese the necessity to actually digitize your work when they steal it. Yeah, exactly. Um, sad, but it's true.
1: Well, I mean, if there's any, sort of, uh, bright light at the end of the proverbial tunnel, if you will, we all know that every generation finds a way to rebel against whatever their generation has to face. And we're already kind of seeing it now, at least a couple of years ago, you, you heard it amongst like the, the females in college, how, they're kind of going analog rebellions. the uh, you know, me growing up in Kentucky, all the females in my family they all know how to crochet, they all know how to make Afghans and all that. and that kind of died off with my generation. but a couple years back I'm hearing stories where college age girls kind of the rebel against digital digital everything that's kind of coming back in the fad where people are starting to learn how to crochet again. And so maybe some of the younger kids who kind of want to rebel against the digital or look for something to do that's not what everybody's doing maybe, models will come back around even stronger for a while. Cause everything seems to so. everything seems to come so. in ebbs and flow. Yeah. I think, I think there's room
3: for it. Anything tactile where you, you create something. Um, it, it's got too much draw and the hard part is getting the kids to do it. I can. Yeah.
1: And Jeff, Jeff, I'm sure Jeff can expand on this, but you, you, you said something very important. Tactile. Um, whether you're a wood shop, uh, whether you do construction for a living, um, you build computers and install, there's just something about I was in this area, there was nothing here. I spent some yeah. time, I left, and now there's a physical, whether it's a, a model Mustang, a car, you know, a computer, a wooden duck that you carved. There's something to be said about. You physically creating something that, well, as long as you take care of it, will be around for a very, very long time. And I think if more people got into that, there's yeah. so much relaxation there. We need to bring back the whole concept of quote unquote analog hobbies. Well, and, well,
2: and you know, it goes beyond to me, it goes beyond the hobby too, because it's a skill mm-hmm. that to work with your hands, that it's something that you hone. You know, it may not directly relate to what you're going to do in your adult life. But as an adolescent child or a teenager, you know, it really does help in a lot of other things. Trust me. I've got four kiddos. <laughs> I can't tell you how many things I've had to fix, yep. super glue, assemble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's like a crib or a bassinet on a much smaller scale. And you're not going to struggle as much as an adult trying to build this piece of furniture, you know, uh, when you can do the hobby. And so that to me, that's that's something that you may not necessarily, you know, always do it as an adult or be interested in the history. But from a mechanical, like you said, from a tactile perspective, it's important. Now, I know me personally, I do it. um, I did it as a kid because it's what I loved. Um, Yeah. It's a deeper, it's definitely a deeper level now for me, as far as it's another facet for me to help keep history alive. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, the Corsair I built is Tommy Blackburn's Corsair, right? Because right. it, it, in 148th, you know, I used to build 172nd. I probably had 50 172nd scale fighters in my room as a kid, you know, they're small wingspan like this. Going into 148th and of course everything else I had going on, you don't necessarily have the room for it. So I had to be kind of strategic, but I built Jimmy Thatch's Wildcat, right? You know, he's known for the Thatch Weave. Um, uh, George Bush's Avenger. Um, uh, Bud Mahurin's uh, Spirit of Atlantic City P-47, for example. So, you know, people that really made history uh, and I, and sometimes I do pick an aircraft that's a little bit more obscure to give you a little bit more, you know, artistic licensing with it. I, and there's like one color picture. It is what it is. <laughs> you know, uh, you can, you can kind of, you can have a little more fun with it. And, but, um, but I think it's important. I think it's a, it's a nice way, uh, to memorialize these guys because I'll also admit I built a, hmm. uh, a scale model of, my Humvee when I was in Iraq. I I took a lot of pictures of the inside of that thing because I thought if I ever make it out of here, I'm going to recreate this in a smaller scale. And, and I absolutely, uh, I absolutely did. And, uh, quick personal story. I lost my driver to my truck a few years ago and, uh, I had to put it down. I, I didn't, you know, it took me a couple of years to finish that build. Uh, but i finally finished it and i actually took it with me to a uh a little memorial that we did for him uh, a you know a unit reunion and uh it meant a lot to the other guys to see something like that so uh you know maybe uh maybe captain morgan uh, the pilot memphis bell maybe he's looking down thinking it's pretty neat to see a bunch of memphis bell models on shelves uh you know all over the world on people's bookcases i you know so yeah uh, you know, like i guess it's a little bit deeper level and 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 that's where you come into uh mr bell you know so the research that the the next level that you've done uh, i can just say firsthand thank you it, it's appreciated and, and i'm You're glad that welcome. you've done it
3: i uh, i appreciate that um i think one of the things i enjoyed most early on with modeling was not just the building but the learning and if you go back to the older kits, the the fifties and sixties plastic. When you got, when you opened up those instructions, they not only told you what this was engine, no, it was this engine, this many horsepower. It gave you the background, uh, uh, as you were assembling things, it would tell you these were 50 caliber machine guns. This was a turret. Um, it would give you all the story. I remember building sailing ships, learning about the names of the different rigs on the, uh, square riggers and learning all those things that are all gone now because it's all been internationalized you have everything as a as an icon or a pictograph or hieroglyphics for that matter um it's it's this is how you get it together but you don't really care or you care but you don't really learn anything about what you just put together and i think that's uh, i think that's what i'm trying to do with a lot of the books it's not just on this date, the national insignia had these bars and this red surround and stuff like that. It's why did they do it? Who decided? Why did they stop doing it um, and who decided? And uh, I think some of the fun that's really buried out there is the, the internal arguments uh, that, that are going on at the time. The juiciest thing I've seen at the archives in the last few years uh, are the right field telephone calls that were recorded and then transcribed because nobody thought any of these conversations were gonna be permanent history. And they'd get together and they would say, general so-and-so is an idiot. And these guys are stealing this part from our supply and we can't get the manufacturer to do it. And it's the whole true story, not the story that's written up to make the, the boss look good. It's it's all out there. These wonderful stories of obscure details and uh, I think where I've been lucky is I'm interested in these obscure details why things happen the way they did and there are enough other people out there just as crazy as I am to enjoy reading about those things um, otherwise I think I'd be out of business as a writer it's crazy stuff yeah
1: Going back real quick, one of the yeah. things that I thought when Jeff was talking about his son working on models is not only is that a great tool to hone your hand-eye coordination, I mean, you got to hold the part in place until that glue sets up, but just patience. I mean, yeah. I-, I think the key trait to building a quality model is patience. I mean, one, patience to assemble the thing appropriately, but more importantly, patience not to try to get it all done in one night yeah and just truly taking your time and and appreciate seeing it come together literally and okay slow down yes we could probably fit five you know but let's just take our time make it right keep the glue to a minimum and just get it done appropriately and i'm It'd be interesting to see if you were to take a, a child, you know, maybe like an eight or nine year old, somebody who has maybe ADD or hypertension or something, and see if you can get them to sit down long enough and just start and see if maybe from the time, maybe a bigger project, from the time that project started to the time that finished, if you saw maybe they start getting more patient and their ex- attention span grew in other areas, it would be a kind of an interesting lab to do. All
2: right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And. Oh, good. Mr. Bell. I'm sorry. I oh,
3: don't know. Go ahead,
2: Jeff. Well, I was going to say, yeah, Don, you hit the nail on the head there. And that uh, there, I do have these uh, aspirations uh, at the Highland Lakes Air Museum to have a club for kids, you know, in the hangar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could come out with a model airplane, or we even have a bunch of people sponsor a bunch of random kits and supplies and the kiddos can come out at a specific time each week or whatever we do one day a month, maybe a little model club and let them work on it and they could keep it there. That way, you know, they're not mom's way, they're not taking up the dining room table, the fumes aren't in their house, whatever, you know, for whatever reason that they, they, could, they wouldn't be able to necessarily do it at home. Uh, I have for years, I have wanted to do something like that. And cause you're absolutely right. It does teach patience an appreciation for something, an artifact that you have now created a little piece of you. You know, I mean, I have every model i built since I was a little kid wow. and uh, every single, the first one was a P 51 P51B. And he looks at it now say, and
1: says, what was I thinking? I just completely <laughs> slaughtered this. thing."
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I did, I used to do pretty good. Now my dad would put the decals on for me. He would do the decals, you know, but I would do all the assembly, all the paint, um, uh, there's some early ones. You can still see there's a little bit of a thumbprint in the wet paint probably here and there, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it does. It, it teaches, there's so many skills, you know, besides, oh, look, an airplane, True. you know? And, and, and that's one way I really want to help get that hobby, uh, you know, out there and reach other people, reach other demographics. <clears throat> um, and, and you never know that kid may grow up to be an engineer one day mm-hmm. or, or something like that you know so yeah
3: putting those two parts of it together a a friend of mine who's since passed was a a modeler back in the 40s and 50s um his parents told him you know stop that get into something where you can you know eventually make a living or do something useful um well hugh hedges became an architect he built uh not only the design buildings but he built the architectural models to show them off and probably his biggest project uh is the vehicle assembly building down at uh cape uh cape canaveral at uh, kennedy space center was one of his he was one of the major designers pulling that all together um so yeah i think that worked out in one case at least (laughs) (laughs) My dad was an airplane nut too he, well he grew up in the age of you know in the 30s it was the everybody was air minded and right. um as a matter of fact uh uh he did become an engineer um and he was working in an engineering firm at the beginning of world war ii and uh he got drafted went down and all he had to do was show him where he worked and he was exempt but he decided that this World War II thing was just too important to be sitting home, you know, building turbines for destroyers when he should be out there with, with a group of uh, people fighting Nazis or Japanese, whatever. End up 188 um, combat engineers, third army, and um, still an airplane that though, uh, couldn't be in the Air Corps. So uh, they're out there in France being strafed by ME-262s, and dad, being an airplane nut every bit as bad as I am today, is up there pointing out the differences to everybody. See, look, no propellers in front. See that glow at the back of the jets? And you're going to see a lot more of these in the future, with which a 30-millimeter round goes off not too far from him and scratches him across the back of his left hand. And, the, you know, jets had no duration, no loiter time. They all went home. Dad went over to get his his hand patched up, didn't even need a stitch, they put a bandage on it. And the um, guy reaches around his big box of purple hearts, goes to give dad his purple heart. And says, I'm not taking that, that's for the people that earned it. There are people out there in combat that did something that deserve a purple heart. And he refused to take the award. War comes to an end, they start totaling up the points. Who's going home first? And I think you can guess who was one purple heart shy of going home right away. And uh, they sent him up to Belgium. Uh, Being an engineer, they had him doing water purification. And he met a gal, an English woman in the NAFI. And um, uh, three years later, they got married. And a few years after that. So so never take a purple heart unless you really deserve it.
2: Don't tell you about the future of That's a great. That's a great story. You know, we used to call them uh, enemy marksmanship badges. <laughs> nobody, nobody wanted to come home with a purple heart, man. You, you didn't want to admit you got hit by one of those guys oh, over there. You dude. know, <laughs> were you the slowest guy or what? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely true.
1: Out of all the books you put together, which one? I don't know if I want to say problematic, troublesome, cumbersome. Which one did you find was the most difficult to acquire the amount of information that you? desire to have for one of your books which particular plane was just kind of your white whale when you set off onto this trip of yours
3: it's actually one that is on hold at the moment Ooh. Um, it's i've been i'm actually lucky it didn't get published 12 years ago because um and it's the story of uh u.s navy um battleship and cruiser aviation before world war ii Uh, And it's, uh, I think the thing that's been holding me up the most is that the Navy from 1925 through the beginning of 1942 painted the tops of the turrets on the capital ships and the cruisers uh, in specific colors for each ship to distinguish them. Um, The part in 1925 is very poorly documented. Uh, There's a switch somewhere in the mid-1930s and then another switch in 1937. I've got most of the story down, um, but I haven't got all the pieces and I'm gonna have to be spending a lot of time down at Archives One on Pennsylvania Avenue going through microfilm, which I hate to do. (laughs) See if I can pin that story down the rest of the way. And it's all part of an evolution. At the same time, the organization is changing. If -hmm. you can understand the markings, you can understand the organization. But at the same time, they're developing a whole new theory of how to put uh, airplanes on ships. Um, oh, I guess it's about 1937, 1938, there's a, a Captain Stott. Um, and Stott was assigned, uh, he became captain of one of the battleships. And I wanna say Idaho, but it, I don't wanna do that from memory. But anyway, Stott has basically a Jerry Maguire moment. And he sits down and he studies all the what's going on with airplanes on his ships, and um, and uh, he writes a three-page memo to headquarters about how everything we're doing is wrong. Um, you know, we can't store three airplanes when we only have two catapults. We can't put a, an airplane filled with gas on top of turret number three because if it gets hit. The gasoline is going to leak down into turret number three where it will not be a welcome addition to the gunnery practice. And he goes on and on explaining all these different changes. And the most telling thing about the whole the whole stott memo is a, a two inch by two inch piece of paper, stapled to the front, pencil written, Admiral, somebody get to Stott and tell him to shut up until he knows what he's talking about world war ii came along and every single recommendation that stott made was put into practice all those pre-war battleships that had uh, catapults on top of turret number three all of those catapults were removed um they stopped carrying more airplanes than they could launch because all they could do is push them over the side and abandon them once the battle started all these changes came about but stock got no credit for it and he did not get his flag before retirement
1: um
3: they brought him back to manage something uh during the war but he was not given sea command again and uh, it's like I want to find the stott family wherever they are and say hey you know what your grandfather he was something he saw what nobody else wanted to see and he and he tried to fix it and they wouldn't listen it's all buried out there in the archives waiting for us to find it
1: And we're lucky to have uh, people like you. And you were mentioning earlier the ever increasing number of people at the archives mm. digging up this information. But y- you made a good point. And that is, you know, you're seeing all these cats in there doing this research. But you got to wonder where's this research going. And I, I always think of what is it the ninety two percent rule? They always mm. say that regardless of what kind of project you're starting, the easiest. Percentage of the work is the first 92%. It's that last little bit that people have the hardest time getting across the finish line and getting whatever it is out and done and into the world. Yeah. Samuel
3: Elliot Morrison, who wrote the uh, Navy's World War II histories, um, Two Ocean War and the multi-volume series that keeps getting re-released, also did a monograph on writing history. And he talks about how we loved researching we love finding out what's going on. And then we sit down and, and we start to write and we get halfway through the first page and realize, oh, well, we don't know what kind of buttons he was wearing on his uniform that day. And we immediately stop writing, and go off and, and start researching button wear in uh, 1922 or whatever. Um, it's, it's that excuse that keeps us from getting the projects done. And uh, it's- it sure is fun to research. But it's so true. It's hard to get it done. I'm a terrible writer, by the way. Um, I I've gotten pretty good at editing my stuff, but I find it very difficult. It's real work for me to actually put word on paper or better yet in the computer. Yeah. Um, it takes a long time to get the idea the way I want it to be.
1: It's so funny what you say about buttons. Though, Cause we here in the living history community, we see that so much. And like right now there's an event that just happened last week and it was put in, planning for years it was an actual living history tactical event for guada oh and the guys were like i mean it got down to hey on the reproduction uh haversacks they the strap clamps are not the right shape <laughs> so i <it> was like <laughs> you need to remove the ones that they put on there and for, i mean they were going like you're talking about buttons all the way down to like the clamp on the web gear for fastening your scabbard to your leg. It had they these guys spent so much time detailing the The things no one ever see, because one, you're fifty yards away, but two, just to make sure everything was right. It's just you see it so often and and sometimes you wonder if, you know, people go down the <laughs> rabbit hole on that. But but that in and of itself kind of leads Interest in how we all operate with what interests us, you know. Mm-hmm. You'd be watching a show and it could be about Guadalcanal or about D-Day and you see something in a photo like, wait, why did he have his spoon in his leggings? And then you spend four hours and you find out, oh, most cats threw away their knife and fork and they just kept their spoon and either put it in their pockets some people put it in their leggings. And, and now you learn something new, but it's something that, 99.8% of the world could care. Who cares about why they carried their spoon in the leggings back in 1943? But that's just, we, we all have our own little things that just jump up and grab us.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have a rule of thumb. Uh, if somebody asks for help, you know, just what did we wear in our leggings in World War two? And you know that it was a spoon, you help out.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, if somebody's building a model, you know, what color green did they put on top of this b-17 and you have to know it's dark olive drab you you help them out it's
1: od3 no i thought it was
3: od7 (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's the it's the folks that, that gather the knowledge and then use it as a weapon that always upset me you've got those reenactors who put it all together and they're standing there the last thing they want to hear after investing their hard-earned bucks is mm-hmm. you know that strap that strap wasn't used if somebody's looking for the right strap and you can get them to the it's right a strap, placeholder by all means
1: and but, it's not just living history it's everything carrie it and i everything part of the reason we do our podcast so late not, late at night is i have three parrots i got an african gray a lilac crowned amazon and a um a very annoying sun conyard and they go to bed at seven. So if I were to do a podcast prior to seven, you'd hear birds chirping in the background. <laughs> I bring all that up to say this, to go back to what you're saying. It doesn't world war two. doesn't matter. building. You sign up for a Facebook parrot group, eight and a half years ago. And, you're do computer work for 15 veterinarian clinics and they all tell you how to take care of your birds and get them off seed, put them on pellets. But you sign up for that Facebook group and you're on there for two hours and you feel like you're the world's worst bird owner because everybody's telling you how you suck and you don't know what <coughs> you're doing. And every group seems to be that whether troll World War II, b- building models, parrots, b- making slime, whatever you, and it, it seems like, and it's, It seems like it happened, maybe happened back in the day too, but it seems like more now people sign up for groups, not because because they seem to have an overwhelming desire to prove what they know and that they know more. I was just about
0: to say, they're just wanting to sound off about what they know. Yeah.
1: And it's so insane.
0: That's not sharing.
1: But this is a good transition for a question I had. Jeff, you can answer this too. Every community has their subgroups. And I'm wondering what the line of demarcation is on this category do you have the groups of people who feel like, okay, you're going to buy the model. It's got, when you build it, it's got to reflect exactly what it looks like on the box or do you, have, and then I'm sure maybe you have the guys who I'm going to put some damage on here. I'm going to war this thing up and personalize it, make on my own. Are those two different camps or is it just do it how you want to do it?
2: You want to take it first, Jeff? Uh, uh yeah, I think, I think I know kind of what you're you're talking. I about guess my there. question and, is:
1: Is there people who are like hold it so hold model building so delicately that they feel you need to make it exactly the way the engineer does. it has to look just like the real thing, not you know pristine? Or do you have people who put the ward damage on there and customize it and make it completely their own?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of. There's there's more categories even than that. I mean, you bring up making it look exactly like it does on the box. I think any any somewhat experienced model builder will make sure he's doing not what's on the box because a lot of times what's on the box is not correct, um, or even what's in the instructions. Um, I learned that pretty early on. I didn't do all of my research. I depended on what was in the instructions and you know, uh, a quick Google search maybe of a couple kits that that other people built and made the same mistake. And then I, f- I saw actual pictures and I'll give you an example. Uh, it's the Avenger. It's the George Bush Avenger that I built. Um, the instructions say where it wrote, where it said Barbara three right there by the cockpit uh, was on the opposite side of the cockpit that it was really on. Oh, man. I mean, that's a big foul. And you only get one D, <laughs> yeah, you know, yep. that was it. You had one shot with it. Uh, so uh, it is what it is. Um, for me, you know, I'm not a rivet counter. Um, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of that crazy I mean, I look, I read some of these reviews, these guys, and it's just like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: wonder yeah, yeah, <laughs> if they have a life. <laughs>
2: it's great no i mean i I don't mean that in a bad way but it's just it's a level that i will never get to don't want to get to because i know even with my dad you know in in our model railroading community i I model in three different scales as well i do like a large garden railroad ho and then n scale
1: oh i thought you were gonna say hand modeling bikini modeling and uh never mind (laughs)
2: there's project Uh, runway for you yeah there you go that's
1: called callback Uh, nice job
2: but you know we go to we go to some guys that have these you know very serious model railroads and and they call it serious fun but it's not even fun when you're operating every you've got to know the lingo you've got to know railroad rules you have to know all of the you know the signal railroad signals Come on guys. Like let's just run trains. And let's watch them go around and let's have fun. So that's kind of I want to be as accurate as I can, but I know my skill set, you know, I'm pretty good, never going to win an award, um but my kits are better than most of what I see from people I know. Um not a competition. As long as I feel that I did some justice to the men who flew the aircraft, uh, I'm happy with it. So I don't know if that answered your question, Don. I mean, like I said, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of groups. There's guys that got to be so far off, like some obscure mm-hmm. P 51 that had, you know, with Brazilian air force markings or something, you know, they're, they're out there. And I'll go back to Dave Klaus again with, with his company uh, to be able to offer, you know, you used to open a kit and you'd have the picture that's on the box and maybe one maybe two other options with your, uh, with which aircraft you're going to do, you know, what your markings are going to be. Now these guys are making these decals so you can go through, okay, I want to do, and that's how I, I, I uh, found fine art of, uh, uh, of decals was I wanted to do the B-17 uh, Aragal Sal. Uh, you don't just buy in 148th. Oh, Aragal Sal. Oh, there it is. Um, but Dave Klaus made them or his company offered them. I'm not sure which, but whatever it is, they were available. Uh, So that's great that you do have these other companies that are supplementing all of these other aircraft, you know, and they're the ones doing the research. They're the ones just like Mr. Bell here that are probably going to the archives, digging through, finding actual photographs that, you know, I didn't even know existed of these aircraft and then Mm -hmm. replicating those markings so you can have a model of that at home yeah uh, and dave is among the many
3: really good researchers when it comes to getting those decals right and there's so many now that well for one thing have become sensitive to the criticism but more importantly really do care about getting something accurate getting things the right way uh getting the thickness of the marking the the m on the side of the airplane the right size thickness i think the the thing that gets me is I'll build something, I used to build something, and just enjoy it for what it was, but there's nothing like the disappointment of getting a kit together and setting it down on the table, looking and say, it just doesn't look right. I can't tell why, and, and it's in cases like that, every now and then you'll get somebody come through and say, well, the fuselage is a half inch too long and the taper begins so far forward and suddenly you realize it doesn't look right because instead of going this nice curve it goes and just isn't what it should have been um there's a place for all of it i think frankly i I am a rivet counter literally um when i was doing the book on the uh, a10 for burt Kinsey, i counted every rivet on that airplane and for the drawings i was doing every rivet was in the exact right place for those drawings and just after the drawings were finished they took me about two months and every now and then i had to run back go take more pictures of an area i'd missed but yeah. drawings were finished and bert sent them off to uh, monogram so the 148 scale uh a10 they released back in the 80s it's got my rivet count on it all right so in one case rivet counting paid off um the the it, uh, corsair cockpit book right now is called rivet counter guide number one <laughs> and the whole idea behind it is
0: sometimes we're just really interested in minute detail mm-hmm. can i ask you a question on, the, on that yeah go for it so corsair cockpits when you're researching vault yeah archive material do you see much difference between Vaults cockpits and Goodyear's cockpits of the FG series Corsairs. In that case, none whatsoever. Okay. It's only a matter of when the changes were
3: introduced. They mm-hmm. uh, uh, may create the change. It may drift over to Brewster and and um, may drift over to Goodyear a month or two later, or even mm-hmm. later. For instance, there's a change with the uh, the paint inside the cockpit. Uh, everything above the um above the consoles on the sides gets painted black right, right. The canopy rail but that didn't happen on Vought and it didn't happen on Brewster because it happens in April 1945 by which time Brewster is Tango
0: uniform and Vought has moved on <clears throat> to the Dash 4 Corsairs so yeah was it so If you look at the floor of the cockpit in the early Corsairs, you had those foot troughs.
3: Yes. Because I've
0: read every memoir I could get my hands on, the guys talk about they would roll over and, you know, chewing gum and and gum wrappers and pencils and stuff would fall from the cockpit well down into their lap, you know, and then they'd roll back over. But you had those foot troughs. Yes. And then didn't they go to a solid floor in the dash four? They did indeed. The floor gets introduced on the dash four. And one of the interesting
3: things that showed up in the archives is the reason. The description they got from the pilots was that they felt like they were sitting over a canyon. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was disorienting to have that much space beneath them inside the cockpit. Hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you got 10,000, 20,000 feet beneath you outside the cockpit, but inside the cockpit, it bothered them. So they went for the floor on the dash four and later.
0: I'd be interested in your take on this because, so Boone Guyton, You know, one of the chief designers, he was like six foot four. He was a big guy. Wow. Yeah. And I've read that some people think he kind of influenced that being, being a big, tall guy. And then, you know, as the Corsair evolved, I mean, a lot of pilots were, were not that tall. Oh yeah. And so, you know, some of the shorter ones, like, you know, some of those guys were, I think Dan Cunningham and VF 17, I think he was like five foot four or five foot five. And I've heard he really struggled with, you know, with, with those foot troughs and the rotor pedals. But yeah, um, I, I just, do you think Boon Guyton being so tall and having the influence, do you think that had something to do with that lack yeah. of a solid force? I, I, I
3: doubt it was because of his height. I believe, okay. I believe what they were trying to do was they had certain guidelines before the war. Mm-hmm. The airplane was designed before uh, America was fighting. Right. Um, it was designed to do certain things. And we knew how we were going to win the war. Um, for one thing, all enemies would melt before us, simply in fear. But they designed this Corsair, it's this wonderful airplane, but they are trying to make it as streamlined as possible, which means you keep your cockpit low. They, they've only tested the XF-4U-1, all right? Before they go into production, they put this massive fuel tank in front of where the cockpit was and moved the entire cockpit farther <laughs> after, right? It's got to work. Well, it had to work because the uh, airplane went into production before they ever test flew this. And what they found was two things. The pilot is now sitting as low as he can get in the cockpit so that the cockpit isn't too high, slowing the airplane down you now, cutting into the slipstream. And at the same time, sitting down low with this longer nose, he can no longer see in front of him what's going on beneath the nose of his own aircraft. So you're sitting there in this airplane with a very cramped windscreen. Uh, You've got a periscope sticking up on top. You've got the gun sight taking up a lot of the the space in front of you. And then the bad guy simply drops down two degrees beneath your nose. You can't tell if he turned right, if he turned left, or if he's still right there in front of you and that that was why they had to raise the seat they had to get the pilot higher just so you could see over the nose uh, mm-hmm. you'll read a lot about that uh the, the raised canopy being uh, to make it easier to land on carriers it wasn't anything to do with landing it was all to do with the fact you couldn't shoot somebody down if you couldn't see him you had to get your butt up just a little higher um about five <coughs> inches they moved you forward. That gave you a slightly better view over the uh, front, also, and then you could see the bad guys when they they tried to get away from you.
1: I was going to say, I'm sure it had an impact on the accuracy of the the weapon system too.
3: Oh,
0: absolutely,
3: absolutely.
1: Did did the Goodyear didn't the
0: Goodyear Corsairs not have folding wings? Oh no. Oh, well, let's put it this way:
3: of the nearly four thousand built, about one thousand of them were built. Um, with the folding wings disabled, okay. They were they were um, going out to marine units. They were going to be. Uh, matter of fact, there are photographs of um, Corsairs on carriers, painted in in water paints on the side of the airplane. Says wings won't fold. Really, so wow. nobody starts pushing real hard trying <clears throat> to get those things up. <laughs> so about a thousand of the Goodyear Corsairs were designed um, with. All the wing folding mechanism removed, uh, the, the seams where the two parts of the wings came together uh, puttied over and, and, and smoothed, the tail hook removed, and the after half of the tail wheel doors uh, essentially stapled closed so those wouldn't open either. And it was only for marine use on the islands, mm-hmm. the ones on carriers were being delivered, not being flown. As uh, carrier airplanes,
1: was there a um, particular manufacturer that kind of got a reputation for maybe not putting out a quality aircraft that maybe one of the other competitors was making the same model of at that time, <laughs> or was the government guideline? I'm I'm a novice on it. Uh, Henry and Jeff are the um, aviation experts on this podcast. This I'm I'm a novice in this particular. Um, topics. So, yeah, I mean, if there's a particular one, I'm all ears. Well,
3: the uh, there were three manufacturers building Corsairs during the war. Um, you had Vought, the designer. You had um, uh, Goodyear making the FG Corsairs. <clears throat> you had um, Brewster. They have Brewster Buffalo fame. and They were making uh, F3A Corsairs. And the story goes that uh, Brewster basically screwed the pooch and was building inferior airplanes and and the Navy didn't want them and uh, they, they broke down easily and they had all these problems. There's no evidence of the truth of that. Um, there were just as many problems with Goodyear Corsairs and with Vought Corsairs as there were with Brewster. Brewster's problem was their management really, really sucked. It was the worst management imaginable.
1: I was going to ask you if you thought maybe it just came down to public relations problem. Uh,
3: public relations on one way, but it was internal relations. They, at one point, well, after the Navy closed Goodyear down, no, I'm sorry, closed Brewster down, um, they had to write up a report of what was wrong. Nothing that was wrong had anything to do with quality of the airplanes. The airplanes were just fine but they were so slow to produce and they were um, so expensive to produce because Goodyear had uh, I keep saying Goodyear when I mean Brewster Brewster had clubs that all the members could go to uh, join and and have fun while they were at work and they they didn't count if you were you know 15 20 30 40 minutes late for work or left yeah. early or took long lunches they they just completely failed. And so uh, the Navy basically took over Brewster and um, brought in Henry Kaiser, uh, he of the ship a day kind of thing, um, and he reorganized the company. And he got them to the point where they're actually functioning like an airplane company was supposed to function. And all things are going smoothly. The um, uh, the 1D Corsair, uh, was going to be shifted over to Brewster production, uh, Goodyear was going to go over and produce uh, the F2, uh, F2G, f 2 the Super Corsair, and uh, everybody's going to be happy. Uh, uh, Vaught was going to switch over to Dash 4s, which they did in, in November, and Brewster decided to reorganize. And the Navy internal memos say, well, let's just see what they do. We're not going to meddle anymore, but if certain people are brought back in and put in charge again, we're going to shut them down. Sure enough, they brought in the wrong people. And uh, a month later, they get a notice from uh, Buair saying, sorry, it's our factory and you're out. We're canceling your contracts and, um, that was the end of Brewster. It had nothing to do with the quality of the airplane. It was the, the high cost and
1: the, the slow delivery. Yeah, you definitely can't have slow delivery in a time like that. Um, no,
3: there is a war going on.
1: Well, perfect yeah. example. I used to build ambulances for a living for a short period of my life. All the different things I did prior to nine 11, the company I worked for lost the New York contract, went to one of our competitors. And that competitor had fallen behind their delivery schedule pre-9-11. Yeah. 9-11 happened. I think nine of the 12, 15 trucks that were destroyed were Horton, which is who I worked for. Guess who got that contract back? Uh, we did because the our competition, who had the contract prior to 9-11, was so far behind their production schedule. 9-11 happened. New York, uh, uh, you know, the fire department lost so many squads and so many ambulances. Yeah. They cannot wait on this backlog, and so I remember our whole plant. We just started pushing out New York trucks into high gear. In, in a time of emergency, you you gotta you gotta be able to get that that stuff out, and you gotta have that same quality too.
3: Sure, at a time where so many people pitched in to make things work, mm-hmm. you can't be the people or the company that says, you know, I think we deserve a raise. <laughs> right, you may deserve a raise, but that's not the time to mention it.
1: You're not talking about the New Zealand dock workers during World War II, are you? I
3: I have no idea what you're talking about, sir. But, uh, yeah, there was – and I'm sorry, but I can't remember the company. But before America entered World War II, um, uh, one of the companies was uh, slowing down production because they didn't want things that were going to be used to uh, stop the Russians, if you'll remember – before June of forty-one, the Russians were on the uh, you know working with the Nazis to divide Europe between them, and um, so this say it nicely, Marxist organized company slowed down American production so that we would be less ready, so that it would not interfere with uh, uh, with Russia's goals, and um, that all changed dramatically when Germany attacked Russia and even more dramatically, uh, when Japan attacked us, it's strange stuff.
1: Real quick. I had a thought earlier when we were talking about the models and I'll say about all the years that you were involved with it. Was there a point I can imagine? So because the whole, just about every industry is this way now. Was there a point when licensing became a problem I'm sure early on it was just public domain, public domain. And then someone got to say, wait a minute, we're losing out on uh, potential revenue here on licensed product. Did that really have an impact on the industry at any point in time?
3: I believe the saying is 95% of lawyers are giving the rest of them a bad name. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, when folks start to realize that uh, helping a company build an accurate model of the B 17, for example, Uh, is promoting your company. Mm -hmm. More people see that, hey, you guys did something tremendous and you you deserve credit for what you created. Um, Mattered less than, hey, we're getting our cut. And um, frankly, if if that's the only way you can keep your company in business, fine. You do what you have to do. Uh, Some companies were, you know, heck, uh, you can do this, but you got to pay us for it. I had this with artwork I was doing for uh, unit insignia for one of the books. Matter of fact, Air Force Colors, volume three. And uh, one of the companies owned the rights to the character. And they wanted me to you know, pay them a certain amount of money to include those characters on the unit insignia wow. uh, in the book. And I wrote back and said, gee, that's very kind of you. But you have to realize you release those rights to the units for... Uh, insignia to be used on their aircraft I'm not selling your 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 character for a, a profit I'm including them as a historical note this is what you did and uh, I'm not going to pay you." then the company backed away um, but ah, you know it's where do you participate how do you how do you help <laughs> get the word out that your company has done good stuff? and how do you make enough money to keep your company doing good stuff there's a balance there in each company bought for instance i've gotten so much free material from what i just told them what i wanted to do and they sent me item after item and and download after download and and um you know we corresponded with their historical unit which was mostly retirees and uh, they were wonderful. They were they were old fashioned. Hey, we did something good. We want the world to know what we did and that it was good. Now, of course, they're not producing airplanes right now, so I don't know that it's hurting their their margin. But uh, I, I wish more companies could be like
1: that. Well, it's just it's a little little interesting because music, for example, hmm. anything prior to 1962 does not have licensing on it. That's why okay. if you listen to um, smaller radio stations when they stream their music online or they stream a talk show online during commercial breaks, if they're not playing commercials, they're playing older music because they don't have to pay to play it. Sure. But it's interesting, too, that it's also the license belongs to that of the original recording. That's why you hear some people who, who are friends with celebrities that celebrity's band will just re-record the song and then they can use it because it's the original recording where the license is held. It's interesting to see that, you know, when it comes to music, anything prior to 1962, unless it's been remastered since then, it's basically public domain, but when it comes to aircraft from the 40s, not so much, or maybe some of the logos put on it by a particular, maybe, um, media company that has some big ears, but I'm just guessing. Yeah.
3: My my sense of it is, my my dad already paid for this yeah all right you built this you were reimbursed for for this uh we don't own the rights to to actually go out and produce more because there were licensing agreements for instance brewster and and goodyear had to pay a license fee to Vought for every corsair they built um so yeah it it kept Vought going
1: See, that's kind of surprising because I always just assume when it came to these manufacturers, it was kind of hoisted upon them by the government saying, okay, hey, we need planes. Uh, we'll give you the contract or you earn the contract. To me, the fact that they got a contract and then had to pay licensing to build the plane or the aircraft that the government's asking them to build, I just licensing on just building it, that never even occurred to me. It started in
3: the very early 20s, um, the Martin Bomber. Um the, the twin engine biplane, Billy Mitchell's favorite, let's sink German battleships and have a good time for all. Well, um, there were objections from several companies, Curtis, Low Willard Fowler, I can't remember who the third one was, but all right, so Martin designed this thing. That doesn't mean they should be the only ones that can sell them to the, com- uh, to the government. We could build that airplane cheaper than they could. And sure enough, uh these other companies got the right to deliver martin bombers to the um to the government um that's why you had the nbs one that's why low willard fowler and curtis got together and bought up enough wood to make the structures to make mb1s they bought so much wood at such a good price they could build them cheaper than martin could and they were building them without a licensing fee back then so there was an awful lot that had to change and did. That whole that whole 20s, 30s buildup between the wars, it fascinates me. I'm spending a lot of time right now digging out material of that period um, and learning just the craziest things that you wouldn't expect of, of how they organized, how they planned, what they thought was legal, what they thought wasn't legal. Um, it's just a great period and it's so evolutionary. I'll, I'll toss another story at you i have no idea how we're doing on time no, we're you're good going have to kick me off but um we're looking at the day after christmas 1929 there's a first lieutenant at Wright field and he is responsible first lieutenant mind you responsible for the decision making on a competition for three new or five new five uh, new um, observation aircraft. Now, four of the aircraft did pretty well and were rated, uh, and one of those was selected. The fifth aircraft was eliminated from the competition, and the reason it was eliminated was because it um, it had used aluminum structure for the wings. All the ribs and all the uh, formers and, and the spars were made out of aluminum. Now, like a real airplane should be, of course, they were covered with canvas or linen or... Sure or whatever the fabric was, but this was too revolutionary. This, this whole idea of using aluminum as part of the structure of the airplane just wasn't there. And, and the young lieutenant writes it all up as we had to reject the, the technology is too advanced for it. Well, let's see, that's day after Christmas 29, sometime in January 30, uh, he has his first son And then he jumped forward 40 years, day after Christmas, 1969. And that young lieutenant has retired from the Air Force. He made lieutenant general. And he can turn to that son of his and say, so tell me, Buzz, what was it like to be the second man to walk on the moon?
1: That's That's crazy.
3: The change in 40 years from we can't trust aluminum to, hey, I just had a boy that walked on the moon.
1: And imagine imagine how many aircraft could have been saved if the wings weren't burning because they're constructed out of wood and there was an engine fire.
3: It was (laughs) bad. It's surprising how much time was spent developing fireproof paints and fireproof dopes and, and trying to protect against in-flight fires didn't always work.
1: One more. uh, Go go ahead, Jeff. I
2: was going to say that comes up a lot in, um, you know, the more I've been reading about World War II, the more it makes me want to read about World War One and the mm-hmm. interwar years. Yeah. And, um, yeah, burn, burning up in an aircraft. There's a, there's a book, uh, Heroes of the Sunlit Sky, and it basically gives you five or six of the major, uh, air forces that were involved in the first world war. And, um, A list of the pilots almost essentially i think it's in alphabetical order or something by last name there's no particular chronology to the book it's just okay the british air forces and a bunch of stories and then the american the german french um but there was definitely a common theme where uh, you know the fires were so prevalent and just what a what a terrible way to go and and an all too common way to Mm -hmm. go because of the construction because of how things were built how it was designed yeah, uh, just it's terrible, godly terrible. Sure. But, uh, you know, it's things like that, uh, that help you understand as things progressed, as the necessity for these war machines happened uh, out of what we thought we needed. And then what we actually did need, uh, because now we are at war. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, interesting to, to see those changes, and to see what facilitated uh, those changes. I'm a big Billy Mitchell fan. And, sure. you know, the sinking of the Austria's is is, um, is it, it, it's just, it's pivotal. It, it's so important. what happened in, in 1921 is, is so relevant in 1941 that it, it's just ridiculous. It's just, it's yeah. a shame that that man did not live to see, uh, you know, the true fruits of, of what he was trying to do. Um, but all the more proof that, uh, you know, the, the way I feel is the, uh, the deeper we can look into the past, the clearer we can see the future. And, and I, I truly I truly believe in that. And, and I think Don needs to make that a T-shirt, actually. It just came to me. And uh, I think that's the what I mean. new What's This Cut About T-shirt. <laughs> Send it to <laughs> but, uh, me and we'll
1: make it happen. It's, it's
2: <laughs>
3: engraved in stone you know? outside the National Archives. What is past is prologue. And uh, oh. it, it's still true. I saw one of your episodes recently where you were talking about Ernst Strom, the, uh, photos from Nuremberg.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, don't know how long ago that episode aired, but, um, uh, I don't even remember who had the photos, but, uh, a relative had been at Nuremberg after the war and there were all these photos blowing around. He collected them up. Yes, and- who was? That was like one of the first episodes after I joined. Yes. Oh,
0: really? That's yeah. right.
3: Cause you were being introduced. Of course. So that yeah. it's a much older
0: episode than I thought. It was the guy's grandfather. Yeah. 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 It's
2: that's, that's a friend of mine. That's a friend of mine who, um, in fact, I just had a cigar with him two nights ago. Him and I are, uh, and, and some others are, are opening a restaurant here, here in Vernon. Yeah. Yeah. His dad was in the uh, was in the Third Army. Yep. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. My yeah. dad personally
3: yeah. winning the war, and um, I noticed that, but I think the significance of Ernst Ström is lost on an awful lot of the youth today because they're going to be in trouble. Ernst Ström was in charge of the brown shirts.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: All right. And the brown shirts were the Nazi. Um. Storm U- U- Storm. Pardon? Storm of Thailand. Yes, exactly. They were the guys who went around. They were the thugs. When you need yeah. somebody to go and disrupt a political party, you send the thugs. Uh, when you need somebody to, to be evil and do nasty things to anybody out there, the brown shirts are available, and Ernst Strom was the head of that. And the Nazis finally got enough power that they no longer needed the brown shirts. That meant they no longer needed Ernst Strom, which is, uh, they trumped up charges and, you know, executed them and broke up the, the brown shirts. Well, we've got the same thing going on today, and I don't want to sound too political. But there are certain political organizations that show up and across the river in D.C. and regularly block traffic, and you know people are being paid for and sent. Mm-hmm. Certain political parties have the ability to deny any contact with these organizations, but everybody there is is working for some of these political parties. Uh, they will show up in front of certain people's houses and raise a ruckus. At some point, if those political parties do get the power they desire the i'm trying to stay neutrally political and sure. it's almost impossible but those people will be the brown shirts of the 2020s they will be they all see themselves as future leaders in the new party but right now they're thugs and they will always be thugs and when power is finally solidified the first thing you do whether you be the French revolutionaries, whether you be the Nazis, um, hell, whether you be the Jacobites, you get rid of the thugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're fighting for something they can never have. They may get it for other people, and I hope they don't. But um, it, it keeps repeating itself. Ernst Strom and the Brown Shirts, it, it's a cyclic story. It goes on and on and on.
1: There's an interesting series on Netflix called Peaky Blinders. Yes. And it are you familiar with it, Jeff or Henry? I am not. It's a great show, it's on Netflix. It's originally a BBC show. Um it starts off season one is roughly a little bit after World War One. It's basically uh there's a kind of a uh English mob family that when all the guys were away at World War One, the, the women ran all the gambling and then running of the numbers and all the enforcing, and the guys came home and they kinda get their place. Well as they're on like season six now. And it's right around 1937, 1938, and you're starting to see the development of these new political parties. And this last season, prior to last season, they introduced Mr. Sir Oswald Mosley, who was a fascist (laughs) leader who was trying to run to be prime minister of Britain. And Tommy Shelby, the leader of the Peaky Blinders, he's been basically uh, dubbed by Churchill himself to kind of slip in with this party to try to relay information. So it's interesting that as little English gangster show that took place after, you know, world war one, it's really gained a lot of popularity amongst young kids. They're now starting to get a little bit of history snuck in on them. And it's, and as you're talking about Brown shirts and all that, you're starting to see the development of this party. And, and it's really, it's nice to see it kind of not being sugarcoated, you know, and it being snuck into the storyline. But before we wrap it up, Mail call time. It's been a while since we've done a mail call time, and if you guys want to email us, please do so at mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Mr. Alexander Richard Marshall sent us a nice long email. I'm just going to read the first half because, uh, you know, we have asked and suggested that if you're a listener of the show and you have some content that you think you can come on the show and talk about, we'll be more than happy to have you, kind of like tonight's episode. And so Alex writes... Hello, Don. My name's Alex. Been a longtime listener of the podcast and a Patreon supporter. Thank you for that. Huge fan of the show. I'm a fellow reenactor out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and never knew there were any like-minded folks around me until I came across your podcast, which got me in touch with a whole mess of cats from all over the state. Currently, I'm an active member of World War II Armor and a member of B Company 502nd out of Ohio but have many other impressions currently working on an l 35 USMC on Guadalcanal, something I have to thank your show for. I would love to absolutely come on your show and talk smack about whatever makes you guys scratch your heads in the conflict. And so he goes on making suggestions. And so we're going to look into getting Alex on the show. But uh, thank you, Alex. And I love the fact that um, our little podcast helped you find people in your area and get you into the reenacting community and help you build so many different impressions. And um, so we want to hear from everybody else. Please email us at mail call at WTSP world war com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to WTSP world war com. Click on that Patreon link, like, and sign up. And um, it's a dollar a month. There's a couple other plans. Mr. Henry sludge was on a, Impromptive. Uh, before we did last week's show, we actually were talking just off the whim for like 20 minutes for the show, so I just took that recording, threw it up there, so you guys can hear that. My brother and I did an, uh, an episode for the OG5 podcast, so we got to get Jeff on there. But yeah, sign up, you get access to the OG5 podcast, you get t-shirts, stickers, and all that good stuff, and if you guys don't mind, please head over to youtube.com, look for Digital 410, and like, and subscribe, and uh, view our videos um henry you got anything coming down the pike you want to plug
0: yeah my article in world war ii magazine will hit the newsstands august 8th
1: beautiful okay. how about you jeff you're a busy man
0: uh i just talk fun stuff
2: i i uh i finally got to start i'm working on a uh i've never built a spitfire so i'm working on a mark five spitfire right now you know i'm still on the Probably always will be on the mighty eighth kick, but this particular Spitfire, I'm probably going to display with a B-17 as they were, you know, uh, spring, summer of 1943, more often than not, they were pulled for their fighter escorts. So I've done a P-47, I've got a P-51 I'm going to get around to doing, uh, So, but I I couldn't resist a Spitfire and uh, and a 148 scale, Uh, I've got a follow me Jeep that I just found. Uh, for for a fair price at the at the hobby shop I was talking about. So, yeah, that's it. You know. Now just, is, it,
1: uh, is it frowned upon when you do those airplanes if you were to paint the engine blocks Chevy orange?
2: <laughs> <laughs> when you put it together, you're not going to see it <laughs> anyway.
1: <laughs> so no one knows but you and the bottle <laughs> of glue and the paint.
2: Just trust me, I mean that B seventeen I did. You know, I, there's a thousand things in there that I'm proud of. That when I put it together one. Nobody's ever going to know it's there. <laughs>
1: yeah. How about a pro tip for all the people I know back when I was making model airplanes, how do you get the cockpit glued on without getting your fingerprint smudges all over the glass?
3: They've uh, got, they have uh glazing glues that you can use that, that uh, don't run, don't fume and, and just hold everything in place. And if you can't find one of those Elmer's white glue, Even if it goes all wrong, you just rip the thing off with your fingers, wash the the glue off, and start over.
1: I don't think people give Elmer's white glue credit for strength and durability. I took eight semesters of ceramics class, and they said if your ceramics Uh, breaks, Elmer's glue is the number one glue to use.
3: Yep, it is. It's wonderful. But then again, ceramics are porous. Yep. That makes the difference.
1: Mr. Bell, you got anything to plug before we wrap up this episode?
3: No, I'm just living life, enjoying every minute, and I had a wonderful time talking with you gentlemen. I really appreciate the invite tonight.
1: Oh, fantastic. We're happy to help you. And that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. And as always, we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.